to get started here in a minute. Good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to Covenant Church. If you don't have a bulletin or a hymnal, there's some on that back table there. You can grab if you don't have one before we get started. Uh, there's restrooms down the hall. Um, there's also a cry room uh, right behind this door to the left. So we love the kids in here. We love having them. But if you uh, need to take them back there, uh, please feel free uh, to do that. Uh, we'll begin this morning with our call to worship. So if you want to stand with me, I'm reminded that every week that we come here, it's about worshiping God and resting in what Christ has done. And I was reading this week, actually on a book we have back there on our book table, called What Happens When We Worship. And it talked about how what happens here is the most important thing we do all week. <laughs> that when we come here together, we are worshiping God. And that it's not just that we're made for worship, but that it's a picture of what we'll be doing in eternity is worshiping our triune God. So I'll read the bold section if you'll follow along after me and read the non-bold. This is from Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord, the Lord says to my Lord, from Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Amen. You want to remain standing and turn to hymn number 224. We'll sing about our great high priest and king as we sing before the throne. Yeah. 
Good morning. If you looked ahead in your handout here, you'll see that uh, we've got a couple of passages in John coming up. Pastor Kendall will be speaking on John 1. But this first, this first, chat, this first verse here comes from Genesis. And you might be thinking, well, how does Genesis fit into this, this whole message? And what this scripture tells us is that there is a need for what's coming up in John. So in, in Genesis 2, 15 through 17, the word says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. If you would all join me in this prayer of confession. Heavenly Father, you are the great king, the ruler of all the earth. You created man in your image, perfect, not right. And yet, because of Adam's sin and disobedience and ours, Death came upon us all, and we, like Adam, have broken your holy law. Forgive us, Lord, for the sake of Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to look to Christ, the last and better Adam. Amen. Would you please remain standing and turn with me to hymn number 209. We'll sing, There is a Fountain.
to kind of put a little context to John 6, 35 through 40. This is after Jesus had just been up and fed the 5,000. And that was just 5,000 men. So we, more than likely, there was more than 5,000. He feeds the 5,000 on five loaves of bread, two fishes. That's the context of what it is in the middle of this. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him on that last day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day where we come to worship You, Lord, who are so worthy. Father, we're humbled in your presence, and we, we just can't thank you enough for all that you have given us. And this day is set aside to just give you back a portion of praise and worship that you adore, that we adore you, and that, that you, uh, you deserve every day, not just one day. Father, thank you for the pardon that you've given us through Christ Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you are the bread of life. That it's so much more than filling our, our bellies with, with physical bread. But you've come to give us, to give us uh, the bread of life. We thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So we come to our Orthodox Catechism here. You may have heard... Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Christ, you might have thought, uh, unless you have some church background, you thought maybe Christ was his last name. Christ is not his last name. Christ means anointed. That's the Greek. In the Hebrew, it's Messiah. And so in the, the Orthodox Catechism, it answers the question, why is he called Christ, that is, anointed? And their answer here is, because he is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. He was ordained and anointed to be our only high priest who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and makes continual intercession with the Father for us. And he was also ordained and anointed to be our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit and who defends us or defends and preserves us in that salvation he has purchased for us. Amen. You all can be seated this morning. Good morning again. It's a joy to be with you all and all those that are visiting. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1, we'll be continuing our study through this great gospel, the gospel of John. And John is different than a lot of other authors uh, in the scriptures. He tells us why he wrote his book. Sometimes uh, either authors of the book, you know, they're talking about other things. John comes right out from the beginning and tells us why he wrote this gospel. And we see it in John chapter 20. He says, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That you might have life in his name. That all these things are written. He says that Jesus did many other things. 
many other signs, many other miracles. You could fill books. The world could not contain all that Jesus did. But these things that John wrote were so that we might believe that he's the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we might have life. Not the life that we have just by being born, but eternal life, supernatural life, life that only God can give us. And so hopefully we've seen that through John's Gospel, and we've been looking specifically at the prologue, which is the introduction, the first 18 verses to John's Gospel, where John sets up all these themes that he will develop later as he goes through this Gospel. And so we've seen these great things that John is saying, that in the beginning was the Word. This Logos, this Word, the Son of God, He was in the beginning with God. And not only that, but He was God. This Word is uncreated, eternal, divine. And we've been seeing John unpack that for us. And then we also see that this Word created all things. That anything that came into existence was because of the Word. That all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And we've come and we've seen all these things that John has said, and then last week we looked specifically at verse 14. At verse 14 in John chapter 1, and we looked at this great passage, and how in a lot of ways it should be shocking to us. It should be shocking that the Word became flesh. And many of us are familiar with this passage, many of us have read this before, but the fact that the Word became flesh, that the uncreated Word of God, who made all things, entered into His creation, in the person of Christ. And so last week, we talked about the person of Christ, who He, was, who he is, what is this incarnation, this language that we sometimes hear around Christmas, what is the incarnation? And so we looked at that. We looked at the fact that Christ was fully God and fully man. That he never stopped being God. He never stopped being who he was, but he took upon himself a human nature with all its properties, right? We talked about Christ having a human mind, human emotions, so that he might redeem us, that he might do all these things, not for his own self, but for us and for our salvation. And now we're going to look at the work of Christ this week. So we're going to be in John chapter 1 verse 14 again. Last week we talked about the person of Christ. This week we're going to talk about the work of Christ. You might have heard me use that phrase before. Maybe you've heard somebody else say it. The person and work of Christ. The person and work of Christ. What does that mean? <laughs> so we talked about the person of Christ last week, but there's still a lot of remaining questions that should be in our minds. And maybe even some of them were spurred by our liturgy this morning. So I think a lot of us, we understand why maybe Christ took on flesh in terms of his person, why he had to become man. But we don't often think about the work that he had to do. You saw in John chapter 6 this morning, Jesus says that he's not come to do his own will, but the will of his Father. He came to do the will of his Father, that he was sent for a purpose. What is that purpose? We see it later in John 17. He said that I came to do the work that my Father sent me for. And I've accomplished that work. And that's at the end of John's Gospel. And so John here is trying to introduce this idea of the person and work of Jesus. And if we don't understand what the work of Christ is, why did the Father send him? What is the work that he came to accomplish? Then the rest of John's Gospel won't really make a lot of sense to us. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, that not only the person of Christ, but the work that he came to accomplish, this divine mission from the Father that he was sent to accomplish is vitally important. And it's actually the foundation of all of our hope, and it's really at the heart of the gospel, of what Christ came to do, this idea of justification by faith alone. So I'm going to read John chapter 1, verse 14. If you want to follow along with me, I'll pray for us. And then we'll look at our passage this morning. This is the word of the Lord. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory 
as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your mercy and for your grace, for giving us your word that we might know you. We can look out in creation and see your powerful hand creating all things, and yet it's not enough. It's not enough for us to look at trees and nature that we need your word to show us that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And we need your word to show us what Christ did, who he is, and what he came to do. And that by believing in Christ, we might have life. Not just superficial human life, but life everlasting. Help us this morning, Lord. We're distracted by many things. Our hearts might be weighed down by the distractions of this world, by the temptations and sin that affect us all. Help us, Lord, to look to Christ this morning, to see what He came to do, and may, at the end of the day, we trust in Christ and rest in Him alone for salvation. We pray all these things in Your Son's name. Amen. Amen. The work of Christ. What is it? There's lots of ideas, there's lots of opinions about what Christ came to do. If you ask somebody on the street, why did Christ come into the world? What answer do you think you would get, right? Some people might say, he came to bring world peace, you know? So maybe that's uh, <laughs> one opinion. Another opinion might be, he came to be a good moral example, right? He came to show us how to live a good life, how to obey God, how to pray better, and so we need to do that. That's why Jesus came. That was the work he came to do. Or maybe he came to bring us all prosperity. Maybe that's why Christ came. Or maybe he came to be an example of how we can do the things that Jesus did. And so he was someone that lived in right relationship with God. And so if we live like Jesus, we can do the things that Jesus did. These are all opinions about why Christ came. This is why he came. And so we have to ask the question... What does the Bible say? What does God's Word say about why Christ came? What was the work that He came to accomplish? We saw in John chapter 6 that He sent from the Father this divine mission. We see in John chapter 17, He's accomplished the work that the Father gave Him to do. So what is it? Is it world peace? <laughs> is it a good example? Why did He come? What was the work that He came to do? And why is it essential? Why is John 14 essential? Why did Christ have to become man to do this? Why? And I'm going to assert something that in order to understand why Christ became a man, we have to understand the first man, Adam. That in order to understand the work of Christ, what he came to do, we have to understand the work that Adam was given to do, right? Because Scripture tells us that there's this type, that Adam was a type of Christ. And so in order to understand the end, what Jesus came to do, we have to go back to the beginning. There's a great book called <laughs> The End is Better Than the Beginning. And so we're going to talk about th that this morning. That we cannot rightly understand what Christ came to do, his person and his work as the incarnate Son of God, until we understand Adam's work Adam's mission, and ultimately why Adam failed at that. Why Adam failed at that. So we'll go back. Let's go all the way back to the beginning, right? Let's go back to Genesis 1. We're so familiar with this story, just sort of, we just read it in our Bible plan and we don't even think about it. What happens in Genesis 1? God creates everything. The heavens and the earth. From nothing comes everything. By the word of his power, he creates all things. And then we see this pattern. We see this thing keep rising up. What, is, what does Moses tell us? He wrote Genesis. What does he say? He says, on the first day, God created light. On the next day, he created this. On the next day, so there's these six days in which God creates. But then on the seventh day, it says God rested. So God works, and then He rests. He works, and then He rests. You're saying, 
What's the big deal? Well, does God need to rest? <laughs> does God get tired? <laughs> Did he create for six days and he, oh, he's getting sweaty and he's like, I need to take a break? No! So why did God rest? Why does it say that God rested? God is all-powerful. He can create with a word. Why did he rest? It was because it was a pattern. He was trying to show us something. And mainly, he was trying to show Adam something. That Adam was created in the image of God. He was the pinnacle of God's creation, the sinless Son of God. And he was to image God in all that he did. He was to reflect God's glory. And one of the ways he was supposed to do that is he was supposed to work and rest. And this pattern of work and rest is throughout the scriptures. You can see it everywhere. And it still carries through to our day to day. That's why we're here on Sunday. That Adam was supposed to work and then rest. Work and then rest. And this rest was a picture of what Adam was to enter. This Sabbath rest that God had held out for Adam. And so Adam is unique in a lot of ways. Because we can think of him that he's just like us, you know. And he is. He's human. He's made in the image of God. But in many ways, he's very different than us. He was sinless, first of all. Right? We are not. He was sinless. And he was given this commission over all the garden to work it and to keep it. And so in a way... Adam is a sort of priest because the Old Testament describes the priest in the tabernacle and the temple as guarding it and keeping it. He was also a king. He was to rule over all of God's creation under God, the great king. He's also a prophet. He was supposed to speak forth God's word. He, God had told him what we read today that all these commands, all these things that Adam is to do and he's to convey that to other people. So Adam is the first prophet, priest, and king. In this garden temple, he's to work it and to keep it. He's to obey God. And so even though Adam was sinless, right? He was not like us. He was sinless. He was perfect in that sense. He had not sinned. There was a higher life held out for Adam. There was a higher life held out for Adam. And we see this signified in the tree of life. Have you ever thought about, why is there a tree of life in the garden? It's signifying this higher life for Adam. That Adam, even though he was sinless, he was still able to sin, right? And we know that because he did, <laughs> right? He did. We know Adam was able to sin because he did. But God, in giving this tree of life, is showing Adam that there's a higher life, there's a quality of life, a Sabbath rest, an eternal life that is held out for Adam. And so God, in his grace, condescends and he enters into an agreement, a covenant with Adam. And he says, if you obey my commands, I will give you eternal life. If you follow my pattern, if you work, if you keep the garden, if you guard it and you keep it, if you do that perfectly, then you will enter this rest. You will be able to eat from the tree of life. But as we read this morning, he says, if you don't, you will surely die. This is what we call the covenant of works. That Adam was to work, he was to obey God, and then he was to receive the reward for his work, eternal life. And we don't think about that a lot. We don't think about this fact that Adam was in this agreement with God, that he was to work, he was to image God, and enter into Sabbath rest. He was to do what God told him to do, the commandment that God gave him in the garden. Do not eat of this tree, of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you do that, you will live. You will have life. You will live. So Adam was a prophet, a priest, and a king. He was to work and obey God, and then he would enter into God's rest, into life. But Adam failed. Adam failed to do this. We know that because he sinned. He was supposed to do what God said and obey, and he did not. He was supposed to guard the garden. He was supposed to crush the head of anything that would come in. He was supposed to resist temptation, and he did not. He didn't. 
the serpent, Satan, using the subtlety of the serpent, deceived Adam and Eve. And they ate of the tree. They disobeyed God. This was not just a simple picking a tree from, <laughs> my kids like Peter Rabbit, I don't know if you've ever read Peter Rabbit, you know, talks about picking a cucumber for Mr. McGregor's garden. It's not just that. This is breaking covenant. This is breaking the covenant that God had set up with Adam. And when Adam sinned, he thrust himself as a representative of all mankind, he thrust us all into sin and death. This is what Romans 5 tells us, that by the one man's sin, all were made sinners. That he represented us, that, and we like to think to ourselves, well, I would have done a better job. I would have obeyed God. I would have done it. <laughs> no. We would have done the same thing that Adam did. And so God, because he's a God of his word, he does not change his mind. We have the fall. Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden. They are cursed. Their nakedness is exposed. They realize their guilt. And so God begins pronouncing these curses, right? On women in childbirth, on the ground. All these curses are coming out. But in the midst of this curse, there's a promise. God gives grace in the midst of this curse. And he promises in Genesis 3.15... That one will come from the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. That one will come from the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. This great seed of the woman will defeat the devil and the works of the devil. We see this all the way back in Genesis 3.15. And so the rest of the scriptures, the rest of the Bible, is really trying to figure out this question. Who is this one? Who is the one that's going to come? Who is going to defeat the devil and the works of the devil? Who is going to do what Adam failed to do? Who is going to enter this rest? And we see that even in the first couple chapters of the Bible, that this one is anticipated. This one is anticipated. It's really interesting. Maybe some of you have like a Bible reading plan and you've been going through, or maybe you started at the beginning of the year. <laughs> and you get to Genesis, and so you read about the creation, the fall, and then you get to these genealogies, <laughs> and you skip them, <laughs> right? You go right to the end, and <laughs> we all do it, right? You know, <laughs> don't lie. <laughs> but there's really interesting things that we see, even in the genealogies, that Noah, his name, does anybody know what Noah's name means? Rest. That Lamech, Noah's father, was anticipating this one, this rest that would come. And he calls him Noah, rest, that he will bring relief for his people. And so they were anticipating that Noah might be this one, this one that would bring relief. So many of us know the story of Noah. The creation is sinful. Everyone is wicked beyond belief. And so God sends the flood. He has Noah build an ark. We're all familiar with this story, and the ark lands on top of a mountain. And the rest, we just sort of, we don't, we don't say the rest, right? But what happens? Noah comes off the ark, and he's almost like a second Adam. He's almost like a second Adam. How so? Because he gets off the ark with all these animals, which is what Adam had, right? All the animals. He named all the animals. Noah comes off, this new creation, the water subside, there's nobody on the earth, it's just Noah and his family. And there's animals. And we see the same commission given to Noah, fill the earth and multiply. And so Noah's like the second Adam. So there's just this imagery brought up that's meant to anticipate, is Noah this one? Is he the one that's going to bring rest? Is he the second Adam? And this is usually where our Sunday school stories stop, right? <laughs> All the animals get off and you put it on the felt board. <laughs> but what happens next? Adam plants a garden. There's more garden imagery. But he doesn't just plant a garden. He plants a vineyard. And he makes wine. And he gets drunk. And he sins. His nakedness is exposed to his children. And... Very similar to Adam and Eve's nakedness being exposed. 
And so we see that there's this problem. That even though God can wipe out everyone on the face of the earth and bring out a Noah in this new creation with everything renewed, there's a problem. Sin. Noah is a sinner. And you can clean everything, but Noah is still a sinner. And so there needs to be a remedy for this sin. That even though after the flood, everything is made new in a sense, there's still the problem of sin. And as we read through the Old Testament, we see the priests come. They are meant to offer sacrifices for sin. They're meant to mediate on behalf of others to God. But they fail. They die. And not only do they die, they have to offer sacrifices for their own sin. They're just as much sinners as the people they're representing. So we have priests. We also have kings that come up. They're meant to defend God's people, conquer their enemies. They also sin. We're familiar with David. Even the best of the kings, David, sinned. He committed adultery. He had the, the woman's husband killed. So the priests are sinners. The kings are failing. The prophets come. And even they fail. They deceive the people. And so there's this bleak picture that the Old Testament paints. They're looking forward to this one. They're looking forward to this one that would bring rest. That would bring eternal life. And the picture looks bleak. Because all the people, even the best of the prophets, the priests, and the kings, fail. They fail miserably. And yet, even in the Old Testament, there's these glimmers of light. Just like in the clouds, when you see the light, pierce through the light, there's these glimmers of light. Where, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses will say... There's a prophet coming after me that's going to be better than me. And he's going to speak forth God's word. As we read today in our call to worship, Psalm 110, what does David say? There's going to be a priest that's going to have reign forever, that's going to sit on the order of Melchizedek forever. We also see this kingly imagery in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God promises to David that he'll have a king one will come from him that will sit on the throne forever. And so there's these pictures, these glimpses of light, of hope, of a better prophet, of a better priest, of a better king, a better Adam. And the answer we have to ask ourselves is, who is this? Who is this better prophet? Who is the better priest that's going to come? Who is the better king? And it's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. That why did the Christ, why did the Son of God have to take on flesh? Why is John 1.14 in our Bibles? What is this mission that he came to accomplish? What's the work that he came to do? In one sense, we can say he came to do what Adam failed to do. What all the prophets and priests and kings only pointed forward to, but could never do. That Adam was supposed to work, he was supposed to obey God perfectly, and then receive the reward for his work, eternal life, rest, glory. And what Christ has done, as another sinless son of God, has done what the first Adam failed to do. He's taken on flesh. He was born under the law, obeyed it perfectly, never failing at any point. Even his death, when he was being nailed to the cross, he did not call out in hate. He obeyed the law perfectly, never failing. And not only did he fulfill the law perfectly, but he died the death that we deserved. That we deserved. And he purchased eternal life. That Christ, coming as a man, as we read this morning, is the better prophet, priest, and king. He not only comes to speak forth the Word of God, He is the Word of God. He comes, as Hebrews says, to ever live to make intercession for us as our great High Priest. He comes as the better King, whose kingdom will have no end. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the work of Christ. That He not only had to take on flesh, but live, be born of a woman, and die the death that we deserve, suffer and die, to do what? To accomplish all that the Father sent him to do. 
accomplish redemption for his people. This is why Christ came. This is why he came. And we can talk about this in two ways. What is this work of redemption? How can we even talk about it? We can talk about it in two ways. We call this the active and the passive obedience of Christ. The active and the passive obedience of Christ. What he did and what he suffered. So what is the passive obedience of Christ? What did he suffer? We know that he suffered greatly. That he took on flesh. As John 1.14 says, he became flesh and dwelt among us. Why? To suffer the punishment for our sin. Philippians says he was obedient to the point of death. Even death on the cross. That Galatians says he took the curse that we deserved. In his body he suffered. The perfect son of God died the death that we should have. And he did this for us and for our salvation. And I think sometimes, so often, we sort of stop here. We stop here. Many of us are familiar with the cross, right? We talk about Christ's substitutionary death. We talk about him dying on the cross for our sins. And we sort of stop there. And my fear is that if we stop there, we're only thinking about Christ removing our sin, which is a great and glorious truth. And it cannot be understated. But if he just removed our sin, there's still a problem. Because to stand before a holy God, we not only need our sin removed, but we have to be perfectly righteous. We have to be perfectly righteous. It's not that we can't just not do bad. We have to always, ever do what is right. Do what is in accordance with God's law. And so if we only talk about this, my fear is that we can live like this. And what I mean by that is if we're only aware of our sin being removed, in our minds we can sometimes think, in order to get to heaven, in order to finish the race, I need to work. It's about my work. That Christ did 50%, he removed my sin, but in order to get to heaven, I have to do the other 50, or 99, or 1%, or whatever in our head we conjure up. That Christ did something, he forgave our sins, but... We have to work, that we have to make up, we have to bring ourselves back to God, this righteousness. And we do this in a lot of ways. We think we just have to do more good than bad. As long as I'm better than all the other people, or the people around me, then I'll be righteous before God. That's what righteousness is. And all we're doing is lowering God's standard. We're lowering God's standard. So why is that not enough? Because of what else Christ did, namely his active obedience. What Christ did in his life, that he lived the perfect life. He never failed at any point. He never failed. He fulfilled the law of God perfectly. He never failed. He was always righteous. He didn't only not do wrong, he also always did right. He always did right. And I think this is missed on us sometimes. And I think even the way we see the scriptures shows us that. There's this common story we know in the scriptures, the temptation in the wilderness. Many of you are familiar with this. It's in the other gospel accounts. After Christ's baptism, he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Right? And he's tempted by the devil. That should remind us of some things. <laughs> Who else was tempted by the devil himself? Adam. So Christ goes into the wilderness, he's tempted, and he quotes scripture to the devil, and he resists temptation. He overcomes, he does what's right. And we sometimes see this as just an example for ourselves. We say, we just need to be like Jesus. We just need to quote scripture to the devil, and that's why this passage is in the Bible. We just need to do what Jesus did. And the truth is, you should. <laughs> if you're tempted, you should probably quote Scripture to yourself. But the reason that Christ did that, 
Why did he go into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and overcome the devil? To do what we could not. To accomplish redemption. To do what Adam in the garden failed to do. This is his active obedience. And he gives it to us. And so this morning, before we do anything, we need to look to Christ. We need to look to Christ. We need to see him as the better Adam. The better prophet. The better priest. The better king. That he fulfilled the covenant of works and gives us the benefits. He entered God's rest. He entered glory. He entered eternal life for us. That's why he had to become man, to do what we could not. He fulfilled the law perfectly. What does Romans 5 say? By the one man's sin, the many were made sinners. But by the one man's act of obedience, the many will be made righteous. This is what Christ came to do. This is his work as the mediator, the Son of God who took on flesh. And so we can't separate the person of Christ and the work of Christ. We can't separate the person of Christ and the work of Christ. And one of my favorite passages, Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, the person of Christ. Born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, the work of Christ. Why? So that we might be adopted as sons and daughters. This is why Christ came. That where Adam failed, where all the other shadows and pictures failed, Christ does not. That he's the better prophet, priest, and king. And our confession of faith, our statement of faith, what we believe about the Bible... It's back there on the table if any of you ever wanted to grab one and see a little bit more about what we believe. In the chapter on talking about Christ the mediator, it says these words, talking about the office of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. It says this, The office of mediator between God and man is proper only to Christ, who is the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God. For in respect to our ignorance, we stand in need of his prophetical office. Him as prophet. In respect to our alienation from God and imperfection of our best services, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and present us acceptable unto God. And in respect to our averseness and utter inability to return to God and for our rescue and security from all of our spiritual adversaries, we need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, uphold, deliver, and preserve us to his heavenly kingdom. Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And so this morning, how do we apply this to our lives? Why does this matter? It should give us great assurance. It should give us great assurance that as mediator, he deals with our guilt our uncleanness, but not only that, he deals with our lack of righteousness. That in and of ourselves, we cannot work our fingers enough to work our way back to God. We need someone who accomplished the work for us. What does Romans 8.1 says? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That by believing in what Christ did, by faith, we're united to him his person, and his work, who he is and what he came to do, and we receive all the benefits that he won. We receive all the benefits that he won. And this should bring us great assurance this morning that in the covenant of grace, we don't have to work in order to receive the rewards, but the rewards are won and worked for by another. And we, with open hands, graciously receive them. This is what faith is. This is receiving and resting on Christ alone for salvation. What's it say in Romans chapter 4? That the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But for the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his work, his, or his faith is counted as righteousness. 
This is the Christian faith. This is the heart of the gospel. This is what Christ came to do. This is the work of our Savior. And so we see that at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, the culmination of all these things, that the end is better than the beginning. The end of the Bible is better than the beginning, in the sense that Adam, he was sinless, he was perfect in a sense, but he could still fall. But what Christ, the better second Adam, came to do is purchase glory for his people, purchase eternal rest and unchanging eternal life whereby we can't fall. And that's what we see in the book of Revelation, that those that have conquered with Christ will eat of what? The tree of life. We see it come back in the book of Revelation. And as we read this morning, all that Christ came to do was what the Father sent him to do, and on the last day, he will raise us up. So what hope we have this morning. So as we come to the time in our service where we come to the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that Christ came, he took on flesh, he dwelt among us to accomplish what we could not, to accomplish redemption, and that when we come to the Lord's Supper or Communion, it's a means of grace. It's a means of assurance that as surely as we eat the bread and drink the cup, so surely Christ was broken for us and His blood spilled for us. That He did these things for us and for our salvation. And so if you're not a believer this morning, we ask that you don't come forward. Because this would be an empty symbol. It wouldn't mean anything to you. But if you are a believer, if you have put your faith in Christ, this is for you. This is a means of grace. It's for those that have outwardly professed their faith, been baptized, and are repenting of their sins. So if you are a believer, if you have trusted in Christ alone for salvation, if you've had your eyes open to the glory of the gospel, if you've repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, then this Lord's Supper, this communion, is for you. And it's a time where we not only examine ourselves, confessing our sin before a holy God, but we also should be rejoicing. Why? Because we're sinners. We're messed up. And that's why we need this every week. We need to be reminded of our sin, but we shouldn't stay there. We should turn our eyes to Christ and rejoice in what He's done. So it's not just examining ourselves, confessing our sin, but it's also rejoicing, knowing that Christ has done it. And we have this great promise in John chapter 6. Jesus says this, For whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. We're reminded of our Lord's words on the night he was betrayed. He took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he said, This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, the cup of wine, the cup of the new covenant, and he said, As often as you do this, as often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. And as often as you drink the cup and eat the bread, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again to raise us all to new life in the new heavens and the new earth. Will you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for your word, for your son, that we who deserved nothing but your justice by faith have received nothing but your grace. Help us this morning to trust in Christ that if we do not believe in Him, if we have not received Christ and all His benefits, help us this morning to not work to earn because we can't, but help us to believe in the One who was sent for us, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may, by believing this morning, may we have life in His name. And would you take these common elements behind me and use them for your purposes that we, we might eat and drink of Christ this morning by faith. Would we do this for your glory and our joy?
In your name we pray. Amen. So come as you're able. We'll form a line here in the middle. Grab the elements, take them back to your seat, and then we'll partake of them together, signifying our union with Christ and with each other. So come as you're able. every week we take the bread we eat we remember and we believe that our Lord's body was broken for the forgiveness of all of our sins and each week we take the cup of wine reminded that Christ's living blood his perfect spotless blood was spilled so that our sin might be atoned for, our iniquity might be cleansed. So every week we take, we drink, we remember and we believe that Christ's blood was spilled for the forgiveness of all of our sins. Amen. If you want to stand with me now, we'll respond to this with another act of worship in singing the great hymn, In Christ Alone. Christ alone. 
Each week we give a portion of what God has graciously given us back to Him as an act of worship. Not to earn anything, not because we can earn God's favor with it, but because of what He's graciously given to us. So let's pray for our offerings this morning. Lord, we thank you for all that you've graciously given us. Um, not only your special grace in the person and work of your Son, but your common grace in the many ways that you provide for us, our families. May we give a portion of what you've graciously given us back to you now, and may you multiply it for the use of your kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.